seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, the trial of the NHS nurse Lucy Letby is continuing at Manchester Crown Court. She wept as she told the court that she was devastated at being accused of murdering seven young babies and the attempted murder of ten others. Asked by her defence lawyer if she'd done anything wrong, no, she replied. She told the jury that she'd only ever done her best to care for the babies. This is a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It involves the most shocking of allegations the alleged murders and attempted murders of tiny, premature babies at the hands of a neonatal nurse whose very job it was to look after them. Lucy Letby is on trial at Manchester Crown Court, accused of killing seven newborns and injuring ten more at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Cheshire. The jury has now been sitting for almost ten months. The prosecution and defence have finished outlining their cases and the jury have been deciding whether Lucy Letby is guilty or not guilty of the 22 charges that she faces. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for The Mail. I will be in court to report on the case as it develops. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week, we'll examine what's happened and bring you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. So the jury has now been deliberating for almost 90 hours, but they're not sitting today because one of them has an important appointment. Yes, and as we've pointed out before, they all have to be together when they're deliberating. They can't talk about the case when any of them are missing, but they'll be back tomorrow to continue to decide whether Lucy Letby is guilty or innocent of the charges she faces. So all we can do is carry on waiting. Welcome to episode 50 Crisis, comedy and court reporting. So, as we said, the jury is still deliberating on its verdicts. The seven women and four men have been deliberating now for 18 days and spent almost 90 hours trying to decide whether Lucy Letby is guilty or innocent. Both of us are still at court with all the other journalists, barristers, police officers and families of the babies involved. You know by now that we can't do anything in the meantime. So today, again, we've got another fantastic interview for you. Someone we've wanted to get onto the podcast for quite a long time. It's Tristan Kirk. He's the court correspondent for the London Evening Standard. And his office is the Old Bailey, the most famous court in the country. 
Morning, Tristan. Oh, that's court announcement, is that? I'm really sorry. That might happen every now and then. Uh, that was. That, I'm in the old Bailey, so... Tristan, um... <laughs> that's the perfect start to the podcast, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. The court's just getting going here and uh, they announce things, let us know what's going on. So talk us through where you are. I'm at the Old Bailey, the Central Criminal Court in London, which is probably the most famous criminal court in, in the country, if not the most famous court in the country. This is, this is where I'm traditionally based, although I cover all of London's various different criminal and civil courts, sort of from the Magistrates Court all the way up to the Supreme Court of the UK. So this is coming from my office within the, the Old Bailey, where us obviously where we deal with quite a lot of the most serious cases, uh, murders, terrorism, that kind of stuff. Today, there's a, an opening of a murder trial with a, with a little bit of a high profile to it. It's possible that I'll go down to Southwark Crown Court, which is nearby where there is a, a death by dangerous driving case. It very much depends on what gets going, what starts and, and what will deliver a story for today. Are you constantly planning ahead, constantly scouring the list? Because you really don't always know what a case is going to look like, feel like, sound like until you're in it. Where do you get your steer from on what's going to be good to go to? I've yeah. got uh, 15 magistrates courts and 10 crown courts. So for me, it's it's a system of perpetual motion, I think is the best way to describe it. <laughs> My system tends to be heavily based on the lists that we receive um, that you've talked about, magistrates' court lists, and then we get some more information from the Crown Court if we're just talking about the criminal side of it. And it's about identifying a case in the early stages that may well be one that you pick up when it comes to trial in the Crown Court, or if it's a case that looks like there might be a guilty plea to make sure you pick it up at an earlier stage. So it very much depends on what the case is and it very much depends on what the uh, how the day is going to pan out. So uh, a case that I covered last week involves somebody who's quite famous, Dustin Lance Black, who's Tom Daly's husband. Oh, yes, okay. It's possibly one of the lowest level cases that I can mm. possibly cover. It's, it involves a spilt drink uh, and he's been charged with assault. Putting mm-hmm. aside what people may think about the CPS, bringing that kind of a case, it is before the magistrate's court mm-hmm. and, and it looks like there will be a trial. And so I was there last week for what turned out to be a sort of a pre-trial hearing where we heard the first details. It involves a, a well-known person. It's an incident that's made the news already. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of case that we go along to at the, at the magistrate's court. Another case, you know, that you might get, take a recent example, I suppose, is, is, is Kevin Spacey. Whereas obviously everyone knows who Kevin Spacey is, and mm-hmm. um, you pick that one up first thing, and you cover every single hearing along the way because mm. of the high-profile nature of it. And then obviously I was there for most days of the trial itself. And then I suppose the third category would be a case that's not got the same kind of profile, but you do want to follow it through. So I'll maybe um, pick up a case, uh, but perhaps a death by dangerous driving case actually, because I have a particular you know, interest in that kind of thing and, and road safety. It's very much a juggling act. There aren't many papers like yours that have invested in court reporting the way that the standard does, which is absolutely brilliant, but it's not replicated elsewhere. I'm a courts correspondent for the Evening Standards, and th- there are a few of me around the, the FT has a, a very good dedicated court reporter. And actually, um, reach those those titles have, have invested in court reporting and uh, 
uh, other newspapers are, are going along that way. I think that a few years ago uh, there was there was a bit of a sort of a publicity drive around court reporting, and there was a lot of people, including myself, I'll admit, who who said, you know, this is declining. There's less of us, and and what came across was a very very negative. Yeah. view of the profession. I think I'd like to attempt to rebalance that a little bit, that although that is true, the numbers are going down, I actually think that we should be looking at it slightly differently, that everybody's a court reporter. Everybody should be able to go from the newsroom into a court and know what they're doing, even if it's just for that day, just for that week, or for one single case. I think that's how you have to retool the way we look at reporting yeah. is it, it shouldn't be a specialism per se where nobody else can do it it shouldn't be a sort of a, just this this quiet dark corner of the <laughs> of the journalistic world <laughs> it should be something i mean the case that you're covering at the moment is obviously of huge interest and importance but it's a case that you could easily see being covered and perhaps it is i'm sorry i don't know but by the the newspapers health correspondence rather than somebody who yeah. traditionally deals with crime and court. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. But we've talked about, haven't we, Caroline, about how it's, it can be intimidating. I mean, I've been to the Old Bailey, actually, Tristan. I don't think we've ever met, but I did the case when Hashim Abidi was on trial a couple of years ago, the brother of the arena bomber. And... Um, there's no more intimidating building, I have to say, than the old Bailey. It's you know, if you're not if it's not your workplace on a daily basis, you know, it's a it's a big old building and the courts are imposing and the lawyers are, you know, very serious. They can be quite frightening places, court buildings. Well, absolutely. I I, I do agree. I mean it is a, a fabulous building that you know, I come to every day, but you can be a, it can be a little overfacing with the the great hall and the marble and the austere mm. surroundings and and you know very serious people dealing with serious cases and perhaps are not geared up necessarily for welcoming uh, young journalists who don't really know what they're doing or haven't been there before. All the court staff involved in the trial that we've been doing have been really really helpful because obviously they know there's a massive media interest. It's the big cases where these things tend to go better than I think the small cases. In my job for the Evening Standard, sometimes it's about finding the case that nobody else is covering. Yeah. And so when I turn up at one of the courts that's lesser covered, taking an example, Harrow Crown Court basically doesn't really get much coverage at all. And you turn up and, and you do get the occasional 
time when they look at you as if you've invaded their property. You know, <laughs> what on earth are you doing here? How can you possibly be covering this kind of case? And they don't necessarily know how to handle you, where to put you, what it is that you're yeah. entitled to do. I, th- I think it's also that thing that you turn up and they go, what do you know that we don't? Whenever anyone tells me this, oh, this isn't a story, I'll instantly go inside. Many, many times when a lawyer or a police officer official or or even sometimes the judge have told me, no, nothing to see here. And it turns out that they're, they're sitting on a belter of a story. So um, you never know, but it's always a good indicator if they're trying to get rid of you. Can you tell us a few of the kind of biggest or most interesting cases that you've done that you've really enjoyed doing or you feel like you've done a public service I suppose reporting on them the two most high profile cases I think I've done in recent years are perhaps not the public service and and maybe a lot of people would look at them and and wonder why it is that they're going through our courts at all the first one is the Johnny Jet Amber Heard case the one that happened in I'd love to have done that one it was genuinely every day is a revelation on top yeah. of a revelation. Um, it was one of those cases where it was just non-stop jaw-dropping moments yeah. and the things that were coming out, the evidence that was being given. And obviously, you know, you've got two Hollywood stars going at it in the high court, which given the way that case has evolved, I'm very glad to have covered that particular case, as we know, and we can still say with full confidence that Johnny Depp was found to be you know, what he was said to be was a case about domestic violence. And the judge came to the conclusion that's substantially true. And obviously, the case has gone over to America, and it's gone a different way. I think there's our civil courts, there's a lot of value placed in them. It was a serious case, it wasn't treated as a sort of a trial by media in the way that it was, it wasn't broadcast, wasn't online people couldn't watch it going on so if anyone wanted to follow it they had to follow the people reporting on it Mm. Um, and I think I think that's 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 sort of a core part of the job the second one I suppose that comes to mind is the Wagatha Christie case which is Rebecca Vardy and uh, Colleen Rooney which Mm. uh, a lot of people would look at and um, (laughs) wonder why on earth (laughs) we're spending so much time uh, going over (laughs) that kind of stuff incredibly enjoyable and I think there was a sort of a guilt-free enjoyment about that ultimately it didn't really matter at all those are the ones that stand out as the the high profile ones i think for for me professionally and and perhaps of more value and and more public service are the serious cases everybody in this country knows who wayne cousins is and i covered that Mm. at the old bailey and 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 the sarah everard murder and and covered that every step the way i mean that's that's one of the ones in recent times like that's that's a really sort of serious case not everybody can be in court and and people desperately want to know what's gone on there Mm. and and the details of it because it's incredibly tragic and horrific but we need to know the details to understand Mm. a little bit about why this happened how this could have happened with a police officer doing something so horrendous and I think linked to that particular case is, is something that I managed to dredge up that was in the courts that would have gone unnoticed if, if I hadn't have done the work that I did on it. And that's to do with the people who attended the, the vigil for Sarah Everard and were then yeah. subsequently prosecuted by the Metropolitan Police accused of breaking the COVID regulations by attending mm. that vigil that happened mm. a, a few days after the murder. 
that is, I know, something you talked about before, the single justice procedure. And it was only through my reporting, bizarre as this sounds, it was only through my reporting that at least one of the people who was prosecuted found out that they'd actually been prosecuted. I'll talk you through briefly. The vigil had happened, as everybody knows, where the police had had uh, gone in, made arrests. And some of those people who'd been arrested had been told, you may well face a penalty under the COVID regulations. Then we moved on many, many months. Uh, I can't remember exactly how much. It may have been something like 18 months. Mm. And then the police were gradually working their way through all of these COVID fines that they handed out. Oh. And they got to the people who'd been arrested at the vigil, and then they started prosecutions against them. But it was only through my reporting on that, checking the lists, finding the cases, getting hold of the paperwork, I was able to bring what, what was going on there in, into the open. And, and yeah, as I say, I spoke to at least one of the defendants who said she had absolutely no idea that a case was ongoing. In fact, had concluded she'd been convicted and fined until I told her about it. And then subsequently, those cases were overturned and the convictions were uh, quashed. Was that, uh, was that because the, the letter had gone astray or she'd not got the letter? Oh, I mean, or, or, or were they simply not informed? Well, the, the problem with those kind of cases is that they, they basically get an address at the time of an incident. Right. Oh, and then they leave it, I don't know, sitting in a drawer for a while. Uh, it, it just gathers dust and then they, they send out these letters. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're relying on the postal system. Did they get a letter? Did they not yeah. get a letter? I've spoken to enough people now who've been dealt with through the single justice procedure to know that those letters do not get through sometimes. I, I recall having a very uh, entertaining conversation with the former footballer Bruce Grobelar, and he had no idea again that he'd been prosecuted and uh, was talking about the skullduggery of it all. But, I mean, he, he's the kind of person who actually travels around. Yeah, of course job. he does. So it's yeah. perfectly conceivable that, you yeah. know, you wouldn't, go home for a few weeks, you've missed the letter, and then you're in court. There's a lot of evidence to say that people are nowadays convicted and fined without knowing that it's happened. We talked to Mark Hanna earlier on in the podcast about single justice procedure and about how difficult it is to get the information. So we'll credit to you, Tristan, because it isn't, Absolutely. you know, it does take a lot of work because it's phone calls, phone calls, can I have this list, can I have this list? And you, you're kind of cross-checking, aren't you? It's not an easy job to get to the bottom of those kind of prosecutions. I mean, the system for me is really, really broken in the way that it was introduced. You shouldn't have cases in closed courts, full stop. But if you're going to do that, then what you should do is you should make it as easy as possible for people to know what it is that you've done. Yeah. For me, having got myself into a position where I understand the system, there is a level of, of ease to it. I know what mm. I'm doing, but I don't think that there's been any attempt or any proper serious attempt for the courts to really promote the idea that journalists can have routine access to these kinds of things. So when I say it is and it isn't, it's like if you know what you're doing, yeah. it's actually quite easy. But if you don't know what you're doing, I really, really pity anyone starting from scratch. You talked, Tristan, about covering the, the Wagatha Christie case and some people might say, well, you know, why was that something you gave your time to or the courts gave their time to? Actually, we see awful situations in the courts. But it's not all like that, is it? There are some lighter moments. 
Well, absolutely. I mean, I don't think I could do the doom and gloom all of the time. And I, I like to, to sort of mix it up. And so you have a varied coverage. So um, you cover the serious cases, you cover them well, and they're more important, let's be mm -hmm. honest. But the, what you're also looking for as a court reporter is the unusual, the, the quirky, the funny, even, dare I say it. This um, is showing those... my age a little bit, Tristan, but I actually, when I was quite a young reporter for the Mail, I did a few days on the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire trial. The coughing major, absolutely fantastic to do, to be honest. I can only uh, express jealousy to have missed what <laughs> sounds like an absolutely superb, yeah. superb case. Oh, whenever I ask me, you know, what do you, you know, what's the funniest case? Two of them always spring to mind. The first one is it's a case of a man, an older gentleman, who'd uh, set out into the countryside one day in North London, gone out in pursuit of some animals. And there was a couple having a picnic in the field who looked over and to their horror seen this gentleman only wearing his socks, pursuing a sheep across the field. And when that didn't work, he, he went off in pursuit of a, another animal, um, I, think, I think a cow. And so this, this scene unfolded in front of the, the couple. And the, the reason that anybody at all heard about is actually is because this gentleman not only was prosecuted but pleaded not guilty to having done it and ended up in in the crown court having a full-blown trial about this all and so all, all this came this came spilling out we, we would never have noticed the case at all apart from the fact that he chose to have a crown he court just trial. quietly pleaded guilty <laughs> exactly yeah he could, could, have, could have got away with it the second one which which always makes me chuckle that this this mm. happened at, at all i was i remember looking at the court lists when i was at the agency and seeing that a man had been charged with uh, i think uh, outraging public decency again for um, having sex with a fire extinguisher and uh, at that stage, oh, the, 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 the mind boggled as to what it was that he'd done. And uh, well, I won't, I won't uh, <laughs> uh, give the, the full explanation. But anyway, this, this man had emerged wearing no clothes intimately with a fire extinguisher from a, a sort of an airing cupboard in the travel lodge um, after having uh, a little bit too much to drink. And uh, well, it, it always makes me chuckle to think of that. Please yeah. spare us the gory details. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> cannot imagine what happened in that airing cupboard. <laughs> the things that people do and they, they end up in court. Tristan, thank you so, thank much, you so much for your time. Brilliant. It's 9.03 on Monday morning and I'm sure that the cases will no doubt be starting bang on 9.30 at the Old Bailey. <laughs> thank you Thanks. ever so much Thanks for your time. Much, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Nice to see you. Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye That's it for episode 50. As soon as we have verdicts from the jury, we'll bring you a special episode of the podcast. We've no idea how long that'll take, but we'll bring you their decision as soon as it happens. You can give us a rating and you can share the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or follow me at Radio Caroline or send us an email at thetrialoflucyletby at gmail.com. See you then. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again, because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being really stressful. Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.